0: Hello, this podcast is sponsored by aboutmeditation.com and our free How to Meditate mini course. Learn meditation in five easy lessons at aboutmeditation.com. Welcome to the One Mind podcast from aboutmeditation.com. My name is Morgan Dix and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm excited to share my interview with my good friend, yoga teacher and clinical acupuncturist, Aaron Aquin. But before we get into the interview, if you enjoy this show, I want to ask if you can please leave us a rating and a review over on iTunes. Let me know how I'm doing and what you think of the show. I read all your comments and I love your feedback. And it's always helpful to hear your thoughts. So, Erin is a good friend of mine, a fellow yogi and an inspired yoga teacher. In her hometown of Hamilton, Ontario... She's kind of like a rock star. I saw it firsthand once when I went to visit. But really, I invited Erin to the show because she straddles the compelling intersection of teaching yoga, practicing Chinese medicine as a clinical acupuncturist, and at the same time, she's been a disciplined meditator for the last six or seven years. So, I was curious to learn more about how her meditation practice has infused, influenced, and otherwise shaped her work as both a yoga teacher and a practitioner of Chinese medicine. And at one point in the interview, I asked Erin why she keeps up a committed meditation practice. And to be honest, I think her answer is really going to surprise you. So I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Now let's jump into the interview. Erin, it's so great to have you on the show. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I think we can just dive right in. You've been teaching yoga for well over a decade, and in fact, you recently published a book called The A to Z of Being a Successful Yoga Teacher. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Awesome. And and you're also a longtime clinical acupuncturist. Is that right?
1: Yes. I was uh, practicing actively while I lived in Canada. And unfortunately, now that I'm living in the U.S., I, I don't have the license to practice, but it's still a huge part. Uh, the Chinese medicine is still a huge part of my, my yoga teaching. I yes. use a lot of that theory for yoga.
0: Fantastic. And I want us to get into that. And maybe we can just start a little bit with your story. Can you share a little bit about your story, how you became a yoga teacher? Also, what led you to start meditating? I know that you've done quite a bit of meditation. You've been on long, silent retreats before. Just if you could share your story with us a bit, that'd be awesome.
1: Sure. I began practicing yoga... Not too long before I actually took a teacher training, I was one of those people that got into it and then within six months had decided that I wanted to teach yoga. I didn't know if it was going to be a full-time job, but it was something I wanted to know more about. Mm -hmm. So I studied at a school in Toronto and I was also at the same time working in the music industry. And those two lives really didn't mix very well because- You know, being out late at a club looking at a band and then getting up at six in the morning to go and practice was not really a lifestyle I could sustain for very long. Right. So at some point, I believe it was actually when we were, I was a tour manager, I decided to to take the leap and um, begin to teach full time. I started to freelance teach in a few different places. Around the same time, I actually started to study Chinese medicine that was actually where I think I got a little bit more serious about meditation as a practice. So when I was studying yoga, there was always meditation was always on the periphery. I would dabble in different styles, but I wasn't really connected to most of the popular forms of meditation that yogis do. I wasn't a Buddhist, I wasn't culturally tied to a lot of the Hindu belief system that some of the yoga theory comes from. Mm. Uh, but the Chinese medicine aspect of yoga that I've sort of fused together—that gave me a reason to meditate as a teacher and as a practitioner that I hadn't found before.
0: Interesting. Can you say a little bit about what that was? That Chinese medicine influence?
1: Yes, I was actually studying with a teacher, Lonnie Jarrett, in Massachusetts, and the first day of our two-year clinical internship, he said very plainly that if we want to be good clinicians, we have to learn how to see people. And the only way to see people was to be clearer yourself. Meditation is obviously a practice that helps you to get perspective and space. So he insisted that everybody, if you actually wanted to do this as a career, and if you wanted to be a good practitioner, that you should meditate for at least a half an hour a day. Mm -hmm. So this sort of idea came in. And because I hadn't before I had any formal training in meditation, it was just something that I had read about, was interested in, but didn't really fit into my yoga practice at the time. Having more of a structure helped me to commit to doing a daily practice. Yeah. And it gave me a purpose because I really did want to be a good clinician. I wanted to help more people.
0: In retrospect, would you say that Lani was right?
1: Totally. Yeah. It, it completely changed my life. It helped me in so many ways, and I was able to help other people, I think, because I was able to see things that were more subtle.
0: I mean, I I find this fascinating. Can we zero in on that a little bit? Lonnie said you need to be able to see clearly, and in particular, you need to be able to see people clearly, and meditation is going to help with that. How exactly did you find that yourself in your own clinical practice?
1: Well, I mean, we are all human beings. So when someone walks through the door, you can make up your mind about them pretty quickly. And there are practical things that you can definitely notice about a person, which is really important in Chinese medicine because we are trying to see the whole picture of the person. Mm -hmm. But because we are humans ourselves as practitioners, we can also easily project things onto people. Right. So if I have a patient that reminds me of someone I had an argument with, I'm going to be more likely to pigeonhole them into a certain pattern or treat them in a certain way. And my response to them may not actually be helpful to them clinically Mm. because it may not be true. I might be seeing things that aren't there. Got it. So the meditation just helps to walk in with a clean slate and really want the best for the person in front of you and want to see as much of them as you possibly can.
0: That's very clear.
1: This, the same thing's actually true in yoga as a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I'm not speaking to people, you can see in the body, if you're really carefully looking at someone where they have restrictions, you can sort of apply those same principles that I was using in my Chinese medicine practice into the yoga room.
0: As you were talking about seeing clearly, often I relate to meditation, and it's, I think, generally the same idea, but I think about listening. And it's part of the same quality that I think your teacher was talking about of just going down to zero, emptying out and being completely attentive, completely present and really available to another person, really listening. And when you do, as you know, amazing things start to happen. You can actually, you hear things that otherwise you wouldn't hear. I guess it's another way of saying seeing things. That you wouldn't otherwise see.
1: Absolutely. I love the idea of being available because if we think about that, even when I'm working with yoga teachers to help them build their classes, a lot of teachers will go into class with a really formulaic plan and they won't necessarily take into account the people who've shown up that day. Right. So I think meditation has been a catalyst to learning how to be completely available to what's actually in front of you. I think that's absolutely true. And that, of course, can apply to anything that's happening in life, which is why meditation is such a powerful practice.
0: And I imagine it's just good as both a clinician and a yoga teacher. Well, you're a standard bearer, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You, you have to come in holding a particular energy for everyone, a particular space. Do you find meditation helps with that?
1: Absolutely. I know there are people who can hold that space and they don't have any sort of a formal meditation practice, Mm -hmm. but most of those people are master teachers. Um, I think it's it's very rare to find someone that doesn't take time to create that space for themselves that can translate space out into the world. And when you are leading a class in anything— you know, it could be yoga, it could be, you know, hip hop, when you really right. are holding holding a room full of people and bringing them together. And there's a, a unification that it's sort of magical when it happens, but you're the director of that. And it's really interesting because I used to teach mainly Ashtanga-based classes. Mm -hmm. So I love Ashtanga. Um, It's unfortunately not a practice that I've been able to sustain because of physical issues with my body. But for years, I taught and practiced in the Ashtanga method. Mm -hmm. And the wonderful thing about that as a newer teacher is that everything is laid out for you. So you don't need to think about what's next. You just follow the sequence and... In a lot of ways, you can let your personality drop away because you just trust in the method that you're teaching.
0: Mm.
1: What was really interesting, when especially when I was really deeply getting into the Chinese medicine piece and bringing that into the classroom, I remember getting up to teach one of my Friday night yin-yang classes at um, my home studio in Hamilton and having no plan. And sitting at the front of the room, And being petrified because I had nothing to say. I had no idea what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I had, I think, 27 people sitting there in front of me expecting something to happen. Wow. And it was the first time that I really thought, I'm going to let go of whatever formula or whatever idea I was going to bring into this. And literally just see what happens. And let the people in the room in front of me inspire the next thing. You know, it's a class that sticks out in my mind, but it was one of the most powerful things to be completely myself. It wasn't that I was deadpan or flat. Who I am was definitely in there. Mm. But it was, I think, the first time that the class, no part of the class was about me. I didn't feel I had to perform. And just the energy by the end of the class, which often happens now, was so grounded that when we all got up to leave, no one said anything. Everyone was very quiet, very still. And I don't think anyone said a word until they got out of the room. So you could just feel that respect for the space that had been created.
0: Mm. It's just a very interesting experience, particularly when you talk about stillness. What is a yin yang yoga class?
1: So a yin yang class, the way that I present them at least, because a lot of teachers will teach this in a different style. But the way that I present a yin-yang class is that half of the class is more vigorous, moving, vinyasa-based. So there's a lot of flowing movements, Mm -hmm. not a lot of long holds. And then the second half of the class will be longer held, deeper stretches. Some of the postures are very supportive and deep, and you could definitely fall asleep in them others are really challenging to hold. So the way that I tend to teach those classes is that I'll do the vinyasa movement first so that the body's actually warm and the joints are lubricated before we do anything that is long held and um, grounding.
0: Do you think it's important for yoga teachers in the same way that you described this with your acupuncture practice, do you think it's important for yoga teachers in general to practice meditation?
1: Yes, I absolutely think it's important. Because I spent the first at least seven or eight years of my teaching not meditating, I also understand why so many don't. The long and short of it is you are directing a group full of people who trust you. If you're not really clear about who you are, who they are, where your boundaries lie... And walking into each of those classes with a lot of humility, which I think meditation really does help to equalize the ego to, to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard to do that job for any length of time and not get ahead of yourself or burn out.
0: That's interesting. So yeah. did you over time also integrate meditation into your yoga classes?
1: I do some very short meditations occasionally in my classes, it's one of those difficult things that I'm still trying to figure out in my own teaching because when people show up to a yoga class, they are usually showing up to move their bodies and to not sit still. So if we're doing a meditation that is primarily sitting, which is definitely how I practice, it's really hard to ask them to sit still for more than five minutes. Yeah. Most people aren't very good at it. You know, we're definitely not trained to sit still for very long. Right in our more young culture, what I started to do is after actually that Friday night class I was describing, I would start to do series of meditation workshops after that class. Mm. So I think we would do usually six week sessions, but for an hour each week, we would do a meditation class where we'd sit for a period of time, have a discussion, and people could really start to find their own personal practice and have that to start every day with.
0: And when you say sit for for a period of time, sit, do you mean sit in meditation? Yes, that's very interesting to me. I know when I started also practicing Ashtanga, and I know sometimes at the end of those sessions, I would just feel I would feel meditation. I, it was almost like I couldn't help it. There would be such a release of mm-hmm. tension through the flow of the practice, and then by the end, there'd be this sense where well, there's nothing left, and you're just letting any residue seep out of you when you're lying there. And I've also felt this at the end of an acupuncture treatment. You have that experience of just your body's just humming, but mm-hmm. you're, em- you're empty. Your awareness naturally starts to expand. That's meditation. I think that's very interesting. And what do you think about that?
1: I've had the same experience in both of those cases as well. I mean, Shavasana is close to the final posture in most yoga forms where you're just laying flat on your back is for most people the closest that they will get to a meditation practice and it's part of the yoga practice. You do get that time and space to completely let go. Mm-hmm. I love that because it's a more organic way of experiencing that state. Whereas a lot of times seated meditation, you know, you're you're planning to sit down and you're taking time to open up or to let go. Whereas shavasana, it sort of happens by itself. If you've really exerted yourself through the practice, it's like a total release. Right. And acupuncture is the same. Your body is getting all of these little blockages moving, the blood's moving, the chi's moving. And it's a great reminder of this actually being a natural state. It's not something you have to do a lot of stuff to attain. It's actually just one way of being
0: Obviously, yoga originally, the hatha yoga, the Mm -hmm. physical practice, reflect only a small portion of what the yoga philosophy actually is composed of. And traditionally, there is, as you and I both know, there's this deep history of powerful enlightenment philosophy that comes with yoga and that the postures you do are just kind of one really small part of what yoga is all about and often traditionally was meant to more support a sitting practice. Can, mm-hmm. you, can you speak to that at all? Is that something you think about as a teacher? Do you think it's important both as a Westerner who's taking yoga or teaching yoga to be mindful of that? Do you think it's kind of a relic? What should people think about that?
1: Traditional yogic philosophy is not a big part of my study. Um, I've, I've mm-hmm. kind of veered off more into the Chinese medicine philosophy because that's where my heart is. Even so, I think there is really something to that. I have also learned that yoga was preparation for seated meditation and deeper spiritual practices. And I think it's actually really interesting to live in a Western culture and in the times that we live in, where a lot of people are very disconnected from their bodies. Mm. I had this conversation with a meditation teacher recently, and He's actually bringing me on his retreat to teach yoga so that people aren't just sitting all day and are actually getting some kind of an embodied awareness from the practice, uh, from his meditation practice and reminding themselves that it's not just from the neck up. Living a spiritual life includes taking care of your body. Interestingly, a lot of yogis who don't meditate don't think about, we're talking about Ashtanga, but a lot of Ashtangis really don't meditate because they think of it as something that's so far ahead of where they are currently. But in their practice, they feel like that's their moving meditation. And it's a deep spiritual practice. I think anyone that does some kind of a physical discipline can talk about how It's just as challenging. I've tried it both ways. Getting up and sitting on a cushion for an hour in the morning is definitely as challenging as the most challenging yoga practice that I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of really great benefits to both.
0: Is the reason you say that is that in both cases, you have to push through a certain amount of resistance. You encounter mental or psychological barriers as well, manifesting as physical barriers, or can you tell me more about that?
1: There are barriers physically when you sit. There are barriers physically when you're practicing asana, and both of them can be manifestations of other things. They could also just be physical barriers. Either way, the discipline to commit to some practice, usually far outside of what the average person is willing to do. No one gives you a medal at the end of your yoga practice. No one gets to see the insights you've had during your meditation practice, but it's something you do for your own personal health and well-being. The benefits of that can definitely affect everything and everyone in your community and far beyond, but it really does have to start with you doing it without knowing where it's going to go, if there's going to be merit. Uh, what you're going to achieve. I think because we do live in a culture that is very rewards-focused, mm-hmm. it can be hard to start something where you don't know where it's going to end up or if it's going to do anything for you.
0: I know in my own experience with yoga, and, and I guess I would say I probably experienced it more in Ashtanga yoga, that sometimes I would just be practicing and you're just moving through a field of pure resistance mm-hmm. and the temptation to externalize that resistance is like all around you in the form <laughs> of, of other people or the teacher or whatever and I suppose that's true of any endeavor you're trying to master but yeah I, that that makes sense to me.
1: I think anyone that practices anything in the morning is going to have a ton of resistance. <laughs> yeah. Physically, no matter what you're doing, the happiest yogis I know are the ones that practice between five o'clock and nine o'clock at night because they're warmed up.
0: <laughs> ah.
1: It's really easy to practice when you've gone through a day of work, but to wake up early when it's cold and when your body's cold and either sit on a cushion or move through a yoga practice, or if you're a warrior, you're doing a bit of both. Yeah. It takes something. You get to know your own um, limitations, mortality, your own resistance. Mm-hmm. It's full of humility.
0: Mm. So currently you've switched into doing a lot of writing. Yes. And you've moved to the States and we're all very happy about that. And, <laughs> um, definitely everybody, I get to spend a fair amount of time with Erin. So it's it's benefit to us, although she, she loves Canada. I can't blame her because we went up and visited her once in Hamilton and she's like a rock star up there. (laughs) Like people come up on the streets and they're like, Aaron, I mean, it's a proverbial, I'd never seen anything like it before. I, I, Uh, like I was so impressed and I I know and love you, but then to see how many people actually recognized you and your teaching and their obvious gratitude, that was awesome. And I had a question though for you mm-hmm. about your meditation practice. You're not practicing your clinical acupuncture practice and you're not teaching here. As such, you're really building your own business. Where does meditation fit for you right now in your own life? Do you have either a regular or semi-regular practice? If so, what is it? And, and also just why? Why do you practice
1: My practice right now, I do a short seated meditation, usually after my morning yoga. Mm -hmm. I had gone back and forth between the two of them so much. And when I would practice for two hours in the morning, I would never meditate. And if I would sit for an hour in the morning, my yoga practice wasn't where I wanted it to be. So I have sort of cut them both a little short and made sure I have time for both. Even though I'm not seeing patients actively and I'm not working with too many yoga clients other than when I go away to teach workshops, Mm -hmm. because I am also writing and I'm in a creative process all the time and I'm a regular blogger, I still feel like I'm really connected to people. And to be honest, I only meditate because I'm going to interface with other people. If I had my way, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would probably never meditate because it's a very difficult practice for me sitting still is not my forte but i do know how much it changes my perspective how much it's opened me up and i know how much it's given me the ability to be a better listener be a be someone that can really see and perceive what's happening for other people and because that's so important to me i've continued to have a a much less intense, but still very regular meditation practice.
0: I think a lot of people can relate to what you said about the challenge of being still. I think it's an enormous challenge in our day and age for people to just discover first the power of being Mm -hmm. really still, but then make a commitment to being still on a regular basis. You've obviously discovered an intrinsic reward from meditation, which I think you described very beautifully in terms of how it affects your perspective, how it changes and opens up your relationship to other people. I don't think that's something that just comes easily. What you described is something that takes a fair amount of work to develop that value. Would you agree with that?
1: I would definitely agree with that. And that's why I've never been shy about saying how difficult I find the practice publicly Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. it's not something that naturally comes easily or that I've fallen in love with. Because I think that, well, as much as I love the stories of inspiration that people have had and people who love meditation are just, you want to be around them. They have so many great things to say. They have so much great experience. It's also been helpful for me to hear about people who have sort of had to muck it out and work hard yeah. to make this a part of their lives and to do something, you know, it's like eating your broccoli. You're doing yeah. it because you know, it's good for you. It may not be the most enjoyable thing. Totally. The fact that it's not easy is actually so good for you. And there's a certain much like, you know, we've, we've brought up Ashtanga, but that was something I I loved about Ashtanga when I was practicing it very actively was how difficult it was and the victorious feeling I felt when I finished my practice every day. I would feel like I won the war. That to me is sometimes even more powerful than having a beautiful insight. It's just being able to sit through it, sit through whatever's happening and just make it until the bell goes off. No matter what the experience is, you're just, you decided you were going to do it and you do it. Essentially meditation for me has been learning how to keep a commitment to myself because I want to be a trustworthy teacher. I want to be the person that's deserving of that really great honor that people pay me. And I think that really has to daily come back to being something that starts with myself.
0: I love that. Thank you. Thank you. It made me think that it was just very evocative when you were describing that. I used to mountain bike a lot and it got to the point where my favorite part was the mm. burn going up single tracks in ways that that were just kind of straight uphill or even long ascents. There was a certain thing about it. It was like more often than not, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a burn. And that's how when I do these bike rides, you just feel your, the burn would just deepen down to mm-hmm. your bone. And the thing was, I knew though, I, if I kept going, that's exactly what you described, that sense of victory, was going to be so powerful. And very little can compare to that because it's just your victory between you and you. You've overcome. And I feel, one, you described that very beautifully and, and made the comparison to meditation in a way I never quite thought of it before. But I think it's a, really, I think it's a very appropriate analogy or metaphor. So we're- that's my snoring dog <laughs> in the background. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear her. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> so Bella, cute. you've been on long retreats mm-hmm. before, right? Could you just share with everyone a little bit about maybe some of your more formative experiences in meditation, like on a silent retreat or one of your more powerful experiences, something that stands out for you? Partly why I'm asking is because I know for myself, retreats have played such a big role in developing my own practice and then my own understanding, my own self-understanding and self-knowledge. Probably above everything, they just reinforce the value of being silent in that space for a protracted amount of time.
1: It's really interesting because the first time I went on a retreat... I didn't actually know it was a silent retreat until I showed up. It, must it was have been a total a shock. shock and I I found out actually at the airport on the way on getting on the bus to the retreat and I had a little bit of a panic because I I don't think I had ever been silent for more than an hour. <laughs> I'm pretty sure wow. I talk in my sleep. So that was in and of itself actually I mean even more than the meditation experiences themselves, the power of silence. I actually, from that very first experience of being silent for 10 days, that changed a lot for me. And being someone that speaks for a living, you know, my job is just me talking for an hour and a half in a class. It was so profound to just let all of the commentary and all of the sort of useless things that I would say from day-to-day fall back into my own mind. And then as the retreat progressed, I noticed that the dialogue, the inner dialogue was getting more sparse and quieter. And by the end of the retreat, I remember being aware that actually my body was aching from all of the sitting, Mm -hmm. but my internal experience just felt so simple. And I've noticed that on every retreat, even if I don't have a big, powerful, meditative insight, the act of being quiet, having a really simple schedule with really only one job, brought so much peace and clarity that I could almost stay there forever. And I'm aware now that I often work in silence, and before I would have to have music on at all times, I would have to have something in the background, some noise at all times around me, and I'm actually very comfortable from those retreat experiences in silence, which has been a total blessing for my teaching because I think from that I really learned how to give space and not feel the urge to fill every single moment in a class with something, with some words, with music, with an insight. And I actually was able to take my experience and give that to my students and let them have their own experience with whatever is going on.
0: You're making me yearn. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So I think we're getting towards kind of wrapping up a little bit, but I wondered, would you care to share any tips with folks who may be new to meditation, who are thinking about starting a meditation practice, or maybe They've started and stopped and they've started and stopped. You've already spoke a lot to the power of commitment and you've sprinkled a lot of tips throughout here. But what tips would you like to share for anyone who's new to meditation?
1: Well, I really enjoyed your episode on how to create a habit. And I, I think anyone that has not listened to that should go back and listen to it because you made some really powerful and important points on how to actually start creating a habit. You're welcome. (laughs) It was great. It was a really good episode. But I think if you're interested in starting a meditation practice, reading books can be really helpful. They can really inspire you. But we have so many other resources that connect you with other people. So, I mean, resources like about meditation, you guys have so many great things. You have the free course. I think all of that is really, really useful. And On top of that, the thing that actually got me to commit to meditation was having other people to either meditate with. Um, I had friends who I would text message in the morning before our meditation and we would both know that the other person was out there. The buddy system Mm -hmm. really works. If you don't live in a place where there's a class available for you to take, where you can regularly meet people and sit, organize something with friends. I spent two years meeting with a few other yoga teachers in my area. And we would just meet wherever we could at six in the morning and sit for a little while. And it was so helpful to each one of us. We became really close friends. We're scattered all over the world, but I'm still in touch with all of those people and it will come, but you may just need some time with others to help get you over the Did you say the 66 days to create a habit? Maybe sit with other people for 66 days and then you may have an easier time doing it on your own. Once the benefits start to come, you'll feel like you can never stop. Whether it's taking five minutes to the end of your yoga practice, signing up for a class, do something that gets you in a space with others.
0: Everyone, the episode that she's referring to on habits is episode eight. So you can go back and check that out and I'll include it in the show notes. Erin, who are your heroes?
1: <laughs> my heroes? My heroes actually, I mean, this, this may sound like a, a really silly answer, but my heroes are actually my yoga students. We've talked a lot about how accountability was really the way that I got on the meditation path. It's definitely helped me get out of ruts in my own yoga practice, knowing that I have other people that are counting on me to show up with something creative, something new with a more developed Mm. practice so that I can actually Mm -hmm. teach them is what has kept me on a spiritual path for a really long time. And I don't think if I were just teaching to different people every week, I would have stayed. So I have students who showed up to my class every week and they would come at 6.30 in the morning. They would come at 8.30 at night, whatever the time I was teaching at would be. And those people kept me coming back. They kept me coming back to my own mat. They kept me coming back to my cushion. They kept me coming back as a teacher. Watching other people grow has been the most exciting, inspiring thing in my own practice. And I really, really feel very grateful that I've been able to work with some of the people that I've I've known over the years.
0: So on this thread, <laughs> in terms of being inspired, what other books or movies? I was going to say people, but you just hit that one. What what books or people or movies? It, we'll throw people in there. Have inspired you lately?
1: Just your podcast. That's the latest thing. <laughs> hey,
0: <laughs> you Morgan,
1: oh. that podcast. Right. I loved it. I really that's, did. It was awesome.
0: Very nice, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about? Your new book, you just self-published recently. Who's it for and why did you write it and how can people learn about it? Can you speak about your book and then can you just share any other projects you've got coming up that people can learn about? Sure.
1: So my book is called The A to Z of Being a Successful Yoga Teacher, as you mentioned. And I wrote it for the other teachers that I mentor. I have been working with newer teachers. I've been working with people who've been teaching actually much longer than me on the business aspect of their work, because unfortunately there are amazing teachers in the world who can barely pay the rent. Because we are working in a heart-centered business, and the common myth about working in any sort of a spiritual world is that you shouldn't really make a lot of money as you do it. And I finally just got so fed up with great teachers I know quitting, teaching altogether, leaving yoga forever, or burning out and being sick all the time. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to create a book that would help them with some of the business basics that unfortunately you don't learn in teacher training and you don't learn unless you have gone to school for business and marketing. And then also... Start to have a conversation about self-worth and how important it is to actually become an advocate for yourself when it comes to things like your salary, when it comes to your boundaries around ethics, when it comes to how you relate to your students and how much you give. So the book is for yoga teachers and for yoga teacher trainees And it is a workbook of sorts. I present a little Mm -hmm. contemplation and then an exercise to help you move through some of the work. And so far, it's been introduced in a teacher training program in Canada. I'm looking to actually get it into a few more yoga schools to help their graduates start with a really, really strong foot forward in this world, in this industry.
0: Where can people
1: find it? It is available on Amazon as a print book or as Kindle. And you can also get it at my website, aquinyoga.com. Yeah, it's www.aquinyoga.com dot com.
0: What else do you have coming up? Do you have any other projects?
1: Yes. Yes. I am launching a special training for y- people who are interested in yin-yang and five element yoga. And that is actually going to be a correspondence training where most of the 200 hours are actually going to be virtual. So people can do it from anywhere, anytime on their own schedule. And then there will be about 20 to 40 in-class hours where they can travel to a few different locations over a weekend to spend with me.
0: You told me you were already working on I am working book. on
1: another book. I'm working on a much bigger book right now. And it is a yin-yang yoga book. So bridging a lot of the ideas, we've actually talked about um, vinyasa yoga with those longer held yoga postures. And of course, meditation and how that plays into yin yoga as a practice and as a lifestyle. So I'm working on that right Mm. now. Not sure when it's going to be out, but anybody that's interested in it can definitely subscribe to my blog because I'll be sharing excerpts and talking about the process.
0: And we'll include links to both your book and your website in the show notes. Thank you. For clarification, can you just briefly define for people, because we've mentioned it a couple of times, I realize not everyone may know what it is. Can you define the terms yin, yang, and also how, when you use that, it applies to yoga?
1: So yin and yang are two energies that in Chinese philosophy we use to describe everything in the universe. Things that are more soft and supple would be considered yin. Things that are more active and fiery would be considered yang. And basically any element in the universe you can break down to be a mixture of these two things. So when we use it in terms of talking about the body or the yoga practice, yang is that flowing, moving, muscle warming practice, and yin Mm. would be more for the more plastic joints of the body, so for the bones, for the blood, and they're more long-held, long-sustained poses.
0: With yin and, and yang, are people more yin than yang, or more yang than yin? Do we all kind of have a type?
1: We usually, we're all a mixture of both, so just even down to the components that you're made of, we're definitely a mixture of both, but sometimes things can be more harmonized than others. I think one of the popular attainments in New age thinking is that we all need to be balanced. And what I love so much about yin yang theory is that you actually never want to be balanced because you're working with living, moving energies. And to be balanced is actually the end of the road. If you had an equal balance, there would be no movement and no life. So people can definitely have more yang at certain times. You know, when you're angry, you feel your face get red, you feel your heart pound, Mm -hmm. that's yang rising Mm -hmm. up in your body. When you are in shavasana or on a table getting acupuncture, you might be more in a yin type state.
0: That's really helpful. Thank you. So my last question, if someone wanted to get in touch with you directly, either to work with you or to follow up with any sort of questions, how, how can people reach you?
1: They can email me at Aaron at Aquinyoga.com.
0: And everyone, I definitely encourage you to check out Erin's blog. It's fantastic. She's a great writer. And of course, if you're a yoga student or a teacher, I recommend checking out her book. Please go check it out. Erin, thank you so much. Great. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Erin Aquin. To learn more about Erin's work, I've included all sorts of links in the show notes. You can find those show notes over at aboutmeditation.com slash podcast. And I really encourage you to check out Erin's work. She's awesome, especially if you're a yoga teacher, but also if you're a student yourself of yoga. And this show was sponsored by our free How to Meditate mini course. You can learn meditation in five easy lessons over at about. Meditation.com And hey, can you let me know how I'm doing and please leave us a rating and review over on iTunes. I'd love to hear from you. And finally, I'm going to end with a quote. And this one is from Tzu, And he says, Be content with what you have. Rejoice in how things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, The whole world belongs to you.